Welcome everyone to episode 38 of Ohio Unsolved. I'm your host Matthew and I'm almost done moving and getting everything set up. I'm shooting for next week to be back to normal episodes. But today is more of one of my favorites, stories from yourghoststories.com. So let's just get right into the episode. Everyone sit back, make sure to lock your doors and windows, and get ready for Ohio Unsolved. Our first story is one person's experience at a haunted hotel. I will start off with an apology, because it's quite lengthy of a story with a fair bit of background information. The story may not seem as spectacular in comparison to some of the others, but as it might just be my first ever paranormal encounter, I just had to share it and get some of your thoughts. First off, a little introduction. I am a 27-year-old male, and I grew up in the city of Birmingham in England. I've always had an interest in the paranormal, but having never experienced anything personally, I have remained mostly skeptical throughout. I say mostly, as there was always an element of belief due to a story in which my granddad experienced poltergeist activity. As a story, he always described as an unexplainable experience rather than a ghost story, even after him witnessing items being thrown across the room. Back in January this year, I found out that I had won an incredible prize off the back of a competition that I had entered in November of 2021. The competition was centered around the release of Ghostbusters Afterlife. The prize itself included a five-day trip to Los Angeles, flights, transfers, accommodation, a Sony Studios tour, and a professional paranormal investigation on board the Queen Mary. I was designated a prize manager who ran through all the T's and C's and worked with me to organize everything. However, I never really noticed a lack of choice in regards to the accommodation. More on that further on. Unfortunately, the Queen Mary investigation was unable to be booked for one reason or another, so me and my girlfriend chose an alternative option, Los Angeles The Fame Kills Tour. Fast forward to Monday the 16th of May, 
when we started the trip of our lifetime. Upon landing in Los Angeles, we had the dreaded situation of our luggage not arriving with us. A few stressful hours at the airport, filling out forms and trying to get through to the airline via various phone numbers, we simply gave in to the fact that we just had to get on with it. We arrived and checked into our hotel, the Hollywood Roosevelt. A beautiful hotel with amazing decor and a celeb-filled history. Not that it mattered too much to us, we had planned to be out exploring from early until late every day. On Tuesday morning, we had a call stating that our luggage had been found and that it would be sent to our hotel shortly after a flight arriving on Wednesday evening. Skipping to the tour, we set off on the short walk to meet our tour guide. We learned some interesting history about some of the buildings along the Walk of Fame and some famous hauntings reported in each. The tour eventually circled back to our hotel, which to our complete surprise, formed the final destination and grand finale of the tour. With a multitude of unexplainable stories, experiences, sightings, and famous ghostly visitors such as Carol Lombard and Marilyn Monroe reportedly residing within. Slightly excited from this newfound info, we tried to visit some of the hot spots within the hotel. Not sure what we were expecting, but of course we didn't encounter anything. After a busy day of various activities, on the Wednesday, we arrived back at the hotel to find that our luggage still had not arrived. The idea of late evening drinks in the bar quickly turned into comfy clothes in bed. At 5 a.m., I was awoken up by the other half, asking if I had turned on the TV. Thinking that I must have leaned on the remote, I fumbled around the bed in search of it, eventually realizing that it was still on the bedside table just outside of my arm reach. I switched the TV off and I placed it back on the table and lied back down. A few seconds later, the TV was back on. Dazed and slightly confused, I reached back over and switched it off again, not really thinking much of it. As soon as I hit the pillow, the TV was lighting up the room for a third time. At this point, none of my thoughts were anything out of the ordinary. So I checked the remote buttons weren't sticking. I checked that there weren't any additional remotes under the pillows or mattresses, and gently tapped the walls to see how thick they were. They were pretty solid, and I certainly don't think the neighbor's remote signal could have been getting through. After ruling those few things out, I made a joke that maybe this was our ghostly visit, which of course was followed by eye rolls and skepticism. However, on the fourth time, and after my initial jokes, the TV turned on once again, but this time we watched on as the TV directly changed channels. It went down a number of times and then back up, maybe one or two and back down. As this was happening, I'm looking at the TV then at the remote, trying to think logically for any reason as to why it happened again. Dumbfounded, I just switched it off again and I hoped for the best. For the fifth time, it turned on again. This time, however, I proceeded to just keep the TV on, proclaiming that whatever was going on had beaten my stubbornness. We were wide awake, 
and so we may as well just watch it. By this time, I had ruled out as much as I could. I commented that maybe our luggage had been delivered, and this was some communication from a friendly visitor, letting us know. As soon as I had finished those words, the TV turned off to standby mode. There was no sleep timer on the screen. Nothing more occurred after that but the sunrise. So after some chatter, we were up and about getting ready for an early morning swim before we were due to hit Universal Studios. On the way down, we thought that we would double check if our luggage had arrived. To our joy, there our bags were, stacked behind the reception desk, waiting for us to collect. As we didn't have any ID proof on us, we thought that we'd carry on and come back with it all after a swim. As I started to walk off, the other half turned back and asked a staff member if they knew the time that they were delivered. I realized why she was asking, and immediately traced back towards the desk. After a few taps on the computer, she responded with, Early this morning, around 5 a.m. Simultaneously, we looked at each other, with what probably looked like a mirrored facial expression, and explained to the lady that we had experienced some issues with our TV reportedly turning off and on at that same time. With no surprise or hesitation, she replied that it was likely one of their many residential guests. We didn't stay in the pool long, so we just went back to the room. My girlfriend jumped in the shower, and off I went with our ID to get our stuff. When I returned, my girlfriend was just switching the shower off, so I can hazard a guess that she hadn't left the bathroom. Unsurprisingly, the TV was on, this time with just the main menu open which she denies having done while I was gone. At no other point during our stay did the TV turn on or off, on its own accord, in the same manner as it did. The skeptic in me has thought of many theories, justifications, and ideas, but it all just comes back full circle. The probability of such coincidence after coincidence is just as mind-blowing. Our next story comes all the way from Australia. This is a story that goes back to my childhood in the late 70s. My friends, who I'll call Luke, family owned a huge amount of land that included owning half of a mountain. This property used to be an old banana growing area that once dominated the hillsides of this area. So you can imagine the impact it had on the environment all the chemicals that were used on spraying bananas with soaking into the land and the waterways and creeks. Luke and I already had a spooky experience, so we were experienced ghost hunters. Luke's dad, Jim, warned us about heading out to the back blocks where there's king brown and yellow-bellied black snakes lurking about, but we were pretty savvy about the bush. We were going to camp in the scrub no more than three cokes from the main house for a couple of days, explore the region, do some yabby fishing, or basically mucking about having an adventure. Luke told me that we're staying in an old abandoned packing shed. It was a banana packing shed in its past life when the Italian POWs were working the land. A good lot stayed behind and married into the local community or into the local indigenous 
Luke told me that there's also an old graveyard close by with some of the POWs buried there, ones who were bit by snakes. That excited me. We got to the old packing shed. It was a corrugated iron tin shed, rusting but still sturdy. We managed to somehow get the door open by bashing the old rusted lock off with a rock, and we were hit by the stench of enclosure. Inside, there were still steel tables bolted to the floor, coated with spider webs and years upon years worth of dust. There were some old tools, rusted beyond repair, but still fascinating to find. We slept the floor clean so we could unroll our sleeping bags, unpack our gear before going outside to explore. The day was getting rather late as we wandered about. At one point, I got a strange feeling of someone watching. I didn't tell Luke just in case he calls me a wimp, so I stayed quiet. That track there, Luke said, pointing at a trail that sneaked into the scrub. That's where the boneyard is. Let's check it out in the morning, eh? I agreed, and then I had to ask. Hey, is there anyone else living around here? Yeah, he says, but the locals, they camp by the creek for a few days. Do a bit of hunting. Dad doesn't mind. They look after the land while they camp here. Are they around at the moment? He shook his head no. They normally come around the end of the winter. Why is that? I asked him. He looked around quickly. Think we should head back to the shed? And we did. That night, we settled down, had our dinner, and Luke brought along a pack of cards. So we sat and played a few games of Euchre and whatever else games we had come along with. It had started to rain, but we weren't bothered. We weren't going to be cut off by flood for where we were located in a hillock, and not far from Luke's place. His old man could come in the four-wheel drive and pick us up if it did become bad. It was coming on at 10 o'clock, and we were both ready to retire to our sleeping bags, when suddenly we both heard it. At first, we thought it was the wind, but the more we listened, the more it became human or inhuman, I should say. We heard what sounded like people getting slaughtered. We heard women, children, men all screaming, what sounded like gunshots and men laughing, dogs barking and growling, men shouting, and all at the same time rain battered at the shed. The wind howled. This kept us up for a half hour, the screaming, crying, shooting, shouting, laughter, and then it faded. We sat there, listening. All we could hear was the cane toads croaking, and some night frogs somewhere also. The next morning came, and found two very sleepless boys, scared out of their wits, rushing out of the old packing shed, and we made our way back home. We went over and over the scene again, making no sense of it. We kept that to ourselves until a few years back. I went to Luke's father's funeral. We got to talking, and the incident came up. He told me the story, what we both heard that night. Something his father, Jim, had told him, as well as researching over the years. What we'd heard that night were the echoes of a time, a massacre of indigenous people by white settlers, over a death of a cow that was found dead, so these white farmers got together 
got pissed as judges before going out and shooting dead over 60 innocent indigenous people. As it turned out, the cow died of old age. The men who did the killings were never brought to justice, and their ancestors are still living in the area. This happened in 1921. Luke and I heard the past screaming for justice. Luke and his siblings sold that land back to the local indigenous land council. They also sold the house that Luke's father built. Too much blood is soaked into that land, and it weeps for justice. Our final story is a haunted doll story. Anything involving haunted dolls always creeped me out as a kid, and I still find them pretty creepy. As a young child, I always enjoyed playing with my dollies, as many young girls do. Now, at the age of 16, I wish I could have found out more about my experience, and maybe some explanations as to why it happened to me. I don't remember much from when I was in my primary school years, but this was certainly one that I remember as if it was words yesterday. There was a jumble sale that took place in the hall of my primary around the year of 2007. I was about eight at the time. There were many unwanted toys that had been brought in by children's parents and the children's themselves, none of which seemed to catch my eye. I was never a lover of shiny, new-looking toys, which is what the majority of them were. After a good rummage through the piles of items, I eventually stumbled across a ragged-looking doll. The doll itself wasn't porcelain or made from any kind of plastic material, but instead it was a soft, crochet doll that looked fairly mistreated and had a lot of stitches torn from its mouth and dress. I was thrilled at the fact that I had another doll to add to my collection, and I had no suspicions of the doll at the time as being particularly strange or abnormal, undoubtedly because of my naivety at the age that I was. When I got home that afternoon, I placed the doll on my bed, and for the first couple of weeks or so, nothing out of the ordinary happened. As I began to collect more and more toys, I gradually started to remove certain toys that had been on my bed for some time. And although Lucy, the doll, was my favorite at this time, I had to move her to a large wooden box that I kept a lot of my other stuffed toys in. That night, I settled down with a Disney movie and I was beginning to drift to sleep when I noticed something was poking out from the top of my toy box that was just to the right of my bed. It was Lucy. It seemed to stand on both of its legs, arms side by side with an unusual facial expression that was unoriginal to the doll, almost like it was smirking. I did not feel threatened by the doll, and I continued to stare at the doll for just a few seconds until unexpectedly, the doll seemed to physically jump from one side of the box to the other. I rushed to the toy box, only to find Lucy laid flat at the top of the pile and motionless. Since then, I have now moved in with my grandma, and I have no current recollection of the doll's whereabouts. 
but I sus suspect that it may still be somewhere within my mom's house. I would be interested in hearing what you guys think, although the story is nothing too crazy. I still count this as a paranormal experience, and I would like to hear your opinions. Well, that's going to do it for today's episode. I hope that everyone enjoyed the stories, and if you did, please rate and review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. A five-star rating really helps others to find this podcast. Make sure that you join us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram. Once again, I want to thank you all for listening and bearing with me through this time of me moving. I, I know that I haven't had a lot of time to invest into further researched episodes, but that will change starting next week. But once again, thank you all for listening, and make sure to keep your doors and windows locked, and stay ready for Ohio Unsolved. <laughs>